You take your seats. If I haven't met you before, my name is Nate Carter. I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cornerstone, and I have the privilege of preaching today. We are in the middle of a series called Messy Faith. It's following the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we've already seen how Abraham so far in our study has had some inspiring moments of faithfulness where he took God at his word and followed him closely. But we've also seen some great moments of faithlessness where he took matters into his own hands rather than following God's instructions. Sometimes the heroes of our faith aren't as heroic as we think. And yet, through it all, God takes Abraham's life, his messy life, and weaves it together to tell a story of grace, redemption, deliverance, and a promise fulfilled. Much like the artwork that you see up here behind me. From your vantage point, this is just a beautiful landscape. But when you look up close, and I invite you to after the service if you'd like, you'll see that it's composed of ripped up pieces of newspaper. On their own, these ripped up pages are nothing but trash. They're nothing but mess. But Leela Mater, who made this for us, took those individual messy bits and crafted them together into a thing of beauty. And that's what God did in Abraham's life. And that's what God can do in our lives. Today we're going to follow Abraham's story through a new chapter. We'll see a moment of great faithfulness from our hero Abraham, but we'll also be reintroduced to an anti-hero, a guy named Lot, who is going to fail at almost every opportunity along the way. Through Lot, we learn that sometimes the anti-heroes have more in common with us than we want to admit. So with that in mind, let's pick up our story at Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now, who are these men? These men are the angels that God had sent to speak the great message to Abraham. Last week, we learned about it, that that he and Sarah are going to have a son, and that about a year from now, they're going to come back, and in their old age, they're going to have a child. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we have this bird's eye view of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham and the angels are looking over it and they're seeing in it the sin that is devastating that city. What is the sin that we're talking about of Sodom and Gomorrah? Kent Hughes says, we naturally think of the sins of these cities as largely sexual in nature. Sodom provides the basic word, sodomy, for sins outside normal sexuality. But if we imagine the sins of these cities only in sexual terms, we miss the depth of their depravity. 
The Hebrew word for outcry, which we read in the scripture, is used to describe the cries of the oppressed and brutalized. It's used for the cry of the oppressed widow or orphan, the cry of the oppressed servant, and the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. Jeremiah uses this word to refer to the scream of terror by an individual or city when it is attacked. Such an outcry is the miserable wail of the oppressed and brutalized. Have you ever heard that cry? I remember when I was in my 20s and my grandfather uh, was on his deathbed. We were living in Texas at the time and he lived in South Carolina and my mom called me and she said, your grandfather's only got a couple of days to live and if you wanna see him before he dies, you gotta jump on a flight right now. And so I did. And uh, I got to be there about a day before he passed away. And, and I think I was the last person that he saw before he did pass away. But that night, as I lay in my bed in the guest room, I remember hearing in his room, the next room over, these cries of pain as the cancer was ravishing his body. And if I could have done anything to stop the pain my grandfather was experiencing, I would have. That's the cry that's coming out of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever cried out like that to the Lord? God hears the cries of his children. Psalm 912, among many other verses, says, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So God is hearing the outcry of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is hearing it as well. And he goes to prayer. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So we see here that Abraham is hearing that outcry and he is troubled by what troubles the heart of God. But as Abraham looks down over the city and sees the sin running rampant there, he doesn't just sit up in his ivory tower and pass judgment on those sinners down there. He cries out on their behalf. He goes to the Lord. It reminds me of when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. In Luke 19, it, it describes what Jesus saw and felt. It says, he approached Jerusalem and saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. This is the same exact experience at Sodom, that these people living in the city, if they had only known what would bring them peace, if they had only known God's way, but yet they're going and pursuing their own ways, they're going after their own pleasures, they're going after their own desires, and so their eyes no longer see the ways of the Lord. 
when we see those things happening around us, when we see sin running rampant in our world, when we go to our news source and we see what this world has come to, how do we respond? I have to admit that I often stand in judgment. I stand in self-righteousness, saying, good thing I'm not like those sinners. But Abraham gets on his knees and he intercedes on behalf of the people who are so blinded by their sin. I think we have a lot to learn from Abraham here and I, I wanna challenge you as you go to your news feed, as you go to your news source, however you receive that, that you would go with a heart of intercession. That perhaps you turn off the TV or you close your eyes before your device and you pray over what's going on in the world and watch for him to answer. I remember when the World Trade Center was attacked, I have to admit, I, I didn't pray for the salvation of Islamic terrorists. Prayed for America, prayed for us. But I think that Jesus would have been praying for the salvation of the Islamic terrorists in the same way, in so many ways now that we should be praying for those who are blinded by their own sin. So Abraham does that. He petitions God. We see he asks God, if there are 50 righteous people in all of Sodom, would you still destroy the city? And God says, no, I won't. And what we see here in the ensuing verse is that, is that Abraham goes back to God over and over and says, what about 45? What if there's 45 righteous people? And God says, no, I, I wouldn't destroy the city for 45. He goes back for 40, 30, 20. Abraham goes as low as 10. And God says, even if there are 10 righteous, I will not destroy the city because of those 10. And we learn that when it comes to prayer, God is not pestered by our persistence. God is not pestered by our persistence. And so Abraham petitions God, and then in, in verse 33, it comes to a close. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham's done his part. He's gone to the Lord. And now, what will God do? And with that question lingering in our minds, we turn to the new scene and find ourselves in the city of Sodom itself, at the home of a man named Lot. So let's continue on to chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. Now Lot knows what happens to people that spend the night in the town square of Sodom. So he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So we are now reintroduced to Abraham's nephew, Lot. And we met Lot uh, several chapters ago. And back in Genesis chapter 13, we remember that Abraham and Lot had been traveling together. But God had blessed them so mightily that they, they didn't have enough pasture land for their flocks and herds. And so Abraham says, we got to split ways so that we have enough pasture land. 
And very generously, Abraham offers Lot to make the first choice. Where do you want to go? And in, in Genesis 13, 10, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, did you notice how that section began? Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley, he lifted up his eyes. He was guided by his eyes. He didn't consult the Lord in this decision. Jesus has some things to say about our eyes. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And later Paul in 2 Corinthians says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Lot's walking by sight and not by faith. Friends, do we allow our eyes to sometimes define our reality? When you have a major decision ahead of you, do you consult the Lord or do you go with what your eyes take in, what seems right to you, what seems logical? We learn from Lot that he's going to allow Sodom to gradually seduce him. Curvilla says that what one looks at, one will become, and what one looks for, one will get. See, we see this progression in the life of Lot. It's said back in chapter 13 that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. He's right on the outskirts of Sodom, but he hasn't quite moved in. But now in chapter 19, we see that Lot is now a resident of Sodom. But more than that, we find him in verse 1 at the city gates. Now the city gates are where the important people gather to talk. So Lot has become a mover and shaker in the city of Sodom. He's living a good life. But Sodom has gotten into his bloodstream. Now, Lot hasn't sunk to that same level of depravity of everyone else in, in Sodom, but he's also not innocent. He's flirting. Hughes says, in a word, Lot was a conflicted soul, at the same time both offended and allured by Sodom. He liked the prosperity, the comforts, the culture, and the prestige but he was worn down by the filthy lives of lawless men and perpetually tortured in his righteous soul by the deeds he saw and heard. As such, he is the prototype and paradigm of so many believers today. Can you relate? I can. At one, at one moment, offended and allured by what's going on around us. Sin is a slippery slope. And I wonder, what do we need to clean up in our own lives? What's the Lord laying upon you right now that you're flirting with? Where is sin subtly working on us, drawing us slowly but surely into its clutches? 
Let's see what happens to Lot in verse 4. But before they lay down, before the angels lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So we see this scene where the, the men, all, it says all the men to the last man surrounded Lot's house. There's probably hundreds of men surrounding probably a very little house and they're clamoring to get inside and do evil. It's a terrifying scene. It's a crazed mob. And we see Lot go out and try to engage with them. And what he does in verse eight is absolutely repugnant. He says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Guys, I have two daughters. And this is the most despicable thing. There's no defense for it in scripture. There's nothing right about what Lot did here. He's grasping at straws. He's trying to do something close to right. He's allowed his hospitality to come above his family. But in doing so, he's done something equally despicable. Verse nine. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and he drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out, this is now the angels, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. We see that the Lord is delivering Lot from their clutches for the moment. But if this were a movie, we would hear the soundtrack start to, to amp up. We would see that the action is beginning to intensify because something is about to happen. God is about to act in a powerful way. Verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in the city? Bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot believes what the angels say. They, he believes that they're about to destroy the place. And so he gathers his family, those closest to him, including his sons-in-law, and they think he's joking. The sons-in-law were blissfully unaware of their impending destruction. And it made me realize what a dangerous place it is to say the words, surely God isn't serious. That's what they're thinking. Surely God's not gonna destroy this place. And, and we do the same thing sometimes. Surely God doesn't care about little sins like that. Surely God doesn't see me when I do that. Surely God doesn't really care if I engage in this behavior. 
Surely God isn't serious. And we see what's going to befall these men when they don't take God seriously. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Listen to this. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The angels have to forcibly remove Lot and his wife and his daughters. You know, God allows us to make our dumb mistakes. He allows the prodigal to leave home and experiment and live his own way hoping that we'll turn and see the error of our ways. But sometimes, sometimes God grabs us by the wrist. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we were were just on a family walk together. And um, one of my daughters is just kind of full of extra energy all the time. So we're walking and she's running, but she's running backwards. She's not looking where she's going. She's just full of fun and living life to the fullest and she's running backwards. And what she doesn't see is that there's an obstacle coming. I can't remember now if it was a rock or a pit or a car. I'm not sure what it was. But I reached out and literally grabbed her by the wrist and picked her up to keep her from hurting herself. And she was mad at me because it hurts to be picked up by the wrist. And I was trying to keep her from cracking her head. Have you ever felt God reach into your life and save you from your own destruction. The text says it's because God is merciful to Lot. But we see instead that Lot lingers. His passivity makes it abundantly clear that he is being saved from destruction entirely by God's grace, completely undeserved. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace just the same way that Lot is saved by grace. I wonder, where are you lingering? Where are you on the brink of sin? Where are you being passive in your faith when you know in your heart that God is calling you to take action. We skip ahead now to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It's finally happening, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what what actually is happening here? We only have a few words to describe the devastation. If you remember that as Lot was preparing to part ways with Abram, He looked at the Jordan Valley and he saw that it was lush and beautiful and so he goes there. See, 
Sodom and Gomorrah are part of the Jordan Valley. And Hughes says that the Jordan Valley is part of the great Syrian-African rift that stretches from Syria through Palestine, through the Rift Valley in Kenya, and on to Eastern Africa. This great rift in the earth was caused by a series of earthquakes. And here, 4,000 years ago, a quake opened up a fissure, releasing gases that then ignited, setting the sulfur and petroleum deposits aflame, resulting in a catastrophic firestorm. So we see a scientific explanation of a natural disaster, but make no mistake about it, this natural disaster was set in motion by the hand of God to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah for their utter sinfulness. And in the midst of that, can you picture it in your mind, this destruction that's befalling the city and Lot and his family are running but Lot's wife looks back. In verse 26, it says that she was behind him. And, and if you remember like your children's like picture books, like you see this picture of like Lot and his, and his daughters-in-law and they're running and like 20 year, yards back is Lot's wife. She's looking behind her. She turns into salt. But in reality, if you read the text carefully, it says that's not what the scene looked like. You see, Lot was already in the city of Zoar, and his wife was well behind them. She was likely miles behind them. Why? Why was she so far back? It's because she missed the good life that she had left behind in Sodom. She was pining. She was looking back at her household. How do we know that? We know that because of Jesus himself talking about this scene. And he's talking in Luke 17 about the day when he himself, Jesus, would return. And on that day, he says, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife was seeking to preserve her life. And she loses it. So what's the deal with the pillar of salt? Like, from this whole passage, that's the one that's hardest for me to swallow. So I did some research on that as well. Now remember, this isn't just a, a quick glance back. You know, she's not running along and she looks back and boom, salt. She stopped She's probably sitting down and gazing over her beloved city. And as she does so in the midst of this disaster, the sulfurous gases begin to come up and engulf her and ultimately kill her, sitting there in the plain looking over Sodom. And then as her body lays there on the ground, it becomes encrusted in salt and other debris that was falling because of this eruption that was happening in the earth. She literally becomes a pillar of salt. She becomes a monument to desiring earthly treasures more than the rescue of God. What are you holding on to? Where are you looking back? A quick glance can become a stare, and a stare 
can beckon us in deeper than we want. With that horrific scene in mind, we transition back now to Abraham, who's viewing this whole scene from afar. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He's back at the scenic overlook, but the view has changed drastically. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen to this, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Do you catch that? God remembered Abraham, not God remembered Lot. God remembered the persistent prayers of Abraham as he went to the mat and prayed over the people of Sodom. He prayed God down to 10. God, would you spare the city if there are 10? God's willing to rescue six, Lot and his wife, his two daughters, and their fiancés. The fiancés think he's joking, and Lot's wife looks back, and now we're down to three, and God is still willing to save the three. What does that tell us? It tells us that prayer matters. Prayer matters. When we feel like maybe our prayers are just going up into the air, when it feels like we're just talking to ourselves, we realize that God is hearing each and every one of them. Prayer matters. Who's your one? Who are you persistently praying over? Who are you failing to quit on praying for? Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. In James 5, we learn that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. I learned this recently in my own life. Pastor Matt turned me on to this website called Bless Every Home. And uh, in this website, you give them your email address and they send you every day the names of five of your neighbors who live right around you. It's different people each day. And so I began praying for my neighborhood. And a lot of these names, I don't even yet have faces associated with, I haven't met them yet, but I know their names and I'm praying for them. So a couple weeks back, uh, I saw that my neighbor across the street had a trailer and I needed to haul something. And so he offered to loan it to me. And I said, I need it on Monday. And he came on Sunday to drop it off in my driveway. And he said, I know I'm a day early dropping this off, but I just, uh, I just took my wife to the emergency room and I need to get back to the hospital to be with her. I felt the spirit stirring inside of me in that moment that I needed to follow up on that. And so I said, well, could I come and pray for your wife? And he said, she would love that. And so the next day I got to go to the hospital and I met his wife and I prayed for her in her hospital room. And the day after that, I was actually visiting someone from Cornerstone at the hospital and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna check and see if she's still there. And lo and behold, she was and I prayed for her again. And then just a couple days ago on the 4th of July, I was walking by my neighbor's house and he said, why don't you come in? 
my wife's home, she's doing much better, just come visit. So I got to sit in their little sunroom and spent some time just getting to know them. We had a great conversation. God's opening up this relationship and I am confident that that would not have happened if I hadn't been praying for my neighborhood. God hears our prayers. Who are you persistently praying for? We see this beautiful scene of Abraham and his faithful prayers. But unfortunately, our time today ends with a very shameful ending. Go with me to verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. We see that Lot is still a man of fear, even though he's been delivered by the hand of God. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Guys, in these time periods, a cave is where you bury bodies. So Lot is just waiting to die. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with his father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And then we see that the second daughter does the same thing. Did you catch the horrible irony? At the hands of his daughters, Lot is subjected to the same sexual depravity that he was willing to subject them to back in Sodom. And furthermore, we see the influence of alcohol on the situation. Lot's drunk. And that doesn't excuse him from the situation. He's still culpable for his actions. Now, alcohol is not forbidden in Scripture, but the overindulgence of alcohol is. Being drunk is. And we see in Lot and in his offspring a pretty shameful ending. Look at verse 36 as we finish off this passage. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. The sons that are born to Lot's daughters would end up becoming enemies of Israel. And so as we come to the end of Genesis 19, we come to the end of one of the messiest vignettes in our whole messy faith, faith series. There's some really dark scenes here and some really despicable characters. But we can learn from them. Lot's family teaches us the devastating power of sin's clutches. First of all, Lot was guided by his eyes, not his faith. His eyes took in the lush land of the Jordan Valley and he went toward it without consulting the Lord. And although he knew the sinfulness of Sodom, He stayed close to it. He dabbled in it. He allowed it to influence him. He allowed the world to influence him rather than being an influencer in the world. And then when God was about to save Lot, we watched him linger 
instead of running God's way. And worse than that, we saw the example of Lot's wife who looks back on Sodom. She's unwilling to let go of the good life she left behind, even if it means remaining in sin and ultimately succumbing to God's judgment. But there's some good news too. On the flip side, we see a marvelous example from Abraham of the power of persistent prayer. Abraham's heart is troubled by what troubles the heart of God. And rather than standing in self-righteousness over sinful Sodom, he falls on his knees and he begs for the Lord's mercy. And Abraham's prayers are heard by God. Lot and his daughters-in-law are saved because God heard Abraham's prayers and remembered them. And God hears your prayers too. He invites you to keep praying and to never give up. So that's what we're gonna do. I've invited the worship team to lead us in a final song. And this song is gonna just give words to pray over those in our lives who need our prayers. Maybe God's bringing to mind right now a friend or a family member who's far from God. Maybe the Spirit is bringing to mind some of the dark places in our country or in our world that are far from God or where the outcry of the oppressed has come to our ears. I want to invite you to use this final song to pray over those people or places that God places on your heart as the worship team leads us.